And, and here's, here's why the breeding sequence is so effective is because elk do have vocalizations that they will do all year round, right. but there are bull vocalizations that only happen during the rut. Okay. And so that's why the breeding sequence is so effective. That's, that's why if, if, if once you understand this and you understand those vocalizations and, and bulls understand this too, as soon as they hear some of these vocalizations, they don't have to be in close proximity to be able to smell the pheromones. They immediately know by the vocalizations and the sounds that they're hearing that that is a tending bull that has a hot cow. They immediately know that's, what's going to attract them. And then all of a sudden bring that, the, you know, those satellite bulls over that direction. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. Michael Batiste, it is September 20th. We've got a week left of archery season, give or take, depending on what state you're in. I really feel like there's, there's three scenarios. There's three situations that have gotten people to this point in the season, either like these were the dates that they had available to hunt Mm -hmm. or they hunted all season long. And now it's like do or die, you know, make or break it time. Um, Or they, they pick this week specifically because they wanted, you know, the peak rut craziness. Uh, this is my greatest weakness throughout the season is, is this week. Um, it, it's always an exciting hunt. It's not hard to find elk, but man, oh man, I just cannot get them to do what I need them to do. So I cannot wait to get into this with you. So September 20th, you know, one of those three, three scenarios, how do we start? What's our plan? So first off, honored to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, you know, that window right there can be such an exciting time because, you know, the autumn equinox, which is usually the 21st or the 22nd, that's equal amount of daylight and nighttime. And the way the light reflects off the cow's pupils, that's what really triggers the rut. And so, you know, you've got a seven to 10 day window around that autumn equinox where the peak red is going to take place. And so you're right. You've got a lot of excitement out there. You've got a lot of pheromones in the air. You've got a lot of cows that are coming into estrus, which just generates a lot of excitement. I mean, you have major bugling activity. You've got herd dynamics that, I mean, the forest is loud. There is a lot of activity and vocalizations going on. And I, I think where a lot of people struggle with this is they get ramped into that excitement and they lose track of really what's going on. They don't understand the situation. They don't understand the vocalizations. And so you're right. First, first thing, one of the challenges with elk hunting is, is locating elk. And the nice thing about this window, it's easy to find elk because they are extremely vocal. Yeah. They're doing it for you. You know, all you have to go out there, go out in the dark and listen for a minute. And if there's elk around, you're going to know it. Oh, absolutely. But it also comes with another set of challenges because when a bull has his herd, he has his cows. And as soon as they start coming into estrus, that bull is so laser focused on breeding those cows that trying to pull that herd bull away from those cows 
is extremely tough because he's going to be dogging her. He's not going to be more than five or six feet away from her. And now what happens is because of the pheromones that she's releasing in the air, that she's an estrus, that creates this bugling activity, this bugle fest. And we get ramped up in that because we want that bugle fest. But here's what happens a lot of times in this. You have this herd bull that's laser focused on his hot cow. And most of the time he's got satellite bulls around him and the satellite bulls are bugling and the herd bulls bugling. But really what's happening is the satellite bulls are actually calling to attract that cow. They're basically saying, I'm a dominant bull. I'm a dominant bull. Let me breed you. And the herd bull, he gets into kind of a defensive tending mode to where now he's screaming back at these bulls saying, keep your butt away. I will kick your butt. This is my cow. This is my lady. He's, he's defending his lady. And so I think where we start is we understand and we recognize that situation. We recognize that scenario because you can get in bugle fits with this bull all day long. He will scream at you and he will sound pissed off and people will sit there and go, Oh my God, this dude is mad. You're right. He is because his lady is an estrus and he's telling you to stay away. Now, this is, this is where a lot of people fall into the category of just another satellite bull because they're screaming at him just like these satellite bulls. He's sitting here listening to this for multiple days. If he's got cows coming in in multiple days, he's hearing these satellite bulls scream at him every single day. So what are you doing differently than any of those satellite bulls? What, what approach are you taking that's different? For most people, nothing. Right. They're acting exactly like those satellite bulls. And what happens is, and this is where understanding the vocalizations and the type of bugles that this herd bull is doing. And so, it, it, so like I said, he's, he's in a defensive mode, right? His type of bugles is basically telling these other bulls, stay away. Now, this is where most hunters kind of make a mistake because they focus and target on that herd bull by doing the exact same thing that the other satellite bulls are doing. So, example, you know, you get in that scenario, you've got multiple bulls bugling, you you recognize, okay, there's, man, the, the rut is on. Okay, we got a scream fest going today. It's Jurassic Park out here. So located easily, because like you said, they're vocal on their own. And so most people will move in within 150, 125 yards and set up and start doing their calling. Now with that, I've, I've just got some questions because I've sure. done this wrong so many times. Sure. Um, if you're locating in the morning, uh-huh. those elk are on the move, right? They're Correct. coming off of, off of food or off of water and they're heading Correct. to bedding and yep. they're going into the wind, yep. it can be really hard to catch up with those elk in a way that doesn't blow them out. Exactly. We, we oh. kind of know that that red activity is going to continue throughout the day, but mm-hmm. you know, maybe we don't have all day to hunt. Maybe we've got to get back for some reason. We've only mm-hmm. got the morning. Like, How do I crack this egg? So, so first off, you're exactly right. In that morning, in those travel corridors, hunting travel corridors can be extremely difficult to hunt elk because they have a destination in mind and they know exactly how much time it's going to take them to get from feeding to bedding because they're, like you said, they're moving with the thermals in their nose. So they're able to check what's ahead of them. Is there danger in front of me? They know that they're going to time it that about the time they start getting close to their bedding area, that thermal is going to switch and change. And now they have the ability to smell their back trail. What's following me? Is there danger pursuing me? Am I okay to settle down here for the day or do I need to keep moving? And so that's why travel corridors can be extremely tough sometimes to hunt because they're not spending a good amount of time a day in those transition corridors. So, in order to kind of crack that egg, it's, it's almost understanding your area well enough that you know where they're going to, and you are mirroring them and trying to keep up with them off to the side, not following because you don't want to be following when those thermals start changing because all of a sudden they're going to smell their back trail. They're going to smell danger. They're going to shut up and they're going to keep quietly moving to their secondary bedding location. But if you're off to the side and able get, to get close to their destination, So, because once they get close to their destination, they don't get to their bedding area and immediately bed down. 
they mill around for a little bit before they bed down. They want to make sure that everything's safe and comfortable. So by getting to that destination or close to, you have a larger window of opportunity to work those elk because they're going to settle down and stay in that area longer. Okay. And so you have a much larger window of opportunity to work them in that scenario than trying to play the cat and mouse game or trying to keep up with them in the travel corridors. So, I mean, in all the years I've been doing this, I have never been able to keep pace with an elk. They, they, they tend to move up and down those mountains just a little bit faster than what I do. Sure. And even on the flats, like, and if you can catch them, you can catch them, whatever you can get within visual sight, but they don't right. want to come back to where they just no. were 30 seconds no. earlier. So yeah, that can be a really exciting morning. And it's like, yeah, he was right there. We were seeing him. They were going through the trees and he was stopping and bugling and I can hear him peeing and everything else. And it's like, and then he just kept going. Cause, and a lot of times they'll like bugle check at you and just keep going and keep going. And they'll go through that first bedding cover and go on to the next one. And you can walk those elk all day long. Mm-hmm. The fact that they're continuing to communicate with you, they're letting you know where they're going. They're basically saying, hey, come along. Now, here's what's funny, too, because of that exact scenario that you talked about there where, you know, you're dogging them all day long and they continue to check with you and continue to move and continue to move. I've heard from so many people that then equate that scenario to, oh, well, elk are call shy. If you bugle in my area, they all just move the other way. They just move away from you. They go away from you. And it's usually that scenario that they, they're trying to hunt them in a travel corridor situation. And the elk are just moving to their destination. They're, they're still in contact with you. They're still, like I said, communicating, saying, hey, we're heading this direction. Come follow us if you want. I mean, they're a dynamic herd animal that are very vocal. So, and, and, but unfortunately, a lot of people just equate that situation because they don't understand exactly what's going on. They just think that bull is running from them. And you're exactly right. Trying to get one to turn around and come back. It's, it's tough, especially if you're not on flat, if you're on vertical. And I mean, you know, as well as I do elevated position, you can see better down than you can up. Why is he going to come back down when he can basically just stop and look down the mountain and see 75 yards farther Yep. and not see an elk that's making a noise? Okay. I don't see an elk. I don't see you down there. There's nothing visually for me to come down there. What's the point? They're not, they're just not going to move unless you give them a good reason to move. Exactly. And that's why, that's why getting on the side and mirroring, it, it, it does a few things. One it, it puts you on the same elevation, the same plane. So thermal, thermals aren't a matter. It, it doesn't matter if the diurnal thermals, if they're going uphill or downhill, you don't have to worry about being winded. And there's no elevated advantage to one side or the other. You're on level playing ground. You're on the same elevation. Um, and elk, a lot of times, will feel safe with that because they're not in a disadvantage. They're, they're not coming into some situation where, especially if you're bugling, you're presenting that you're a bull. Okay. If you're going to come into a fight, why would you walk into a fight where you know you have a disadvantage? Yeah, I, I firmly agree with that. And I think way too many people try to set up with the wind in their face and I really want it in their ear. Mm-hmm. Like give, give that elk the same advantage that you have, mm-hmm. um, but realize that he's still disadvantaged because he can't smell you. He just isn't uh, a relative disadvantage to you if you could smell him and he can't smell you. Well, remember an elk, basically their, their, their defenses are are sight, smell, and hearing. And so an elk is going to want to see you first, hear you second, smell you third. And so if you, in in your setups, if you, if, if you check each of those boxes, so like you said, wind coming from the side instead of in your face, you know, now there's not an advantage. So um, all of those checkpoints, your, your setups are going to be a lot more successful. So, so are decoys part of your game? I will use decoys from, from time to time. They can be highly effective. Um, a, a few kind of negatives that I have on decoys is first off, like I said, Elk are a social herd dynamic animal. 
eye contact is one of the things that they use to communicate in the herds. So if you have a decoy that's just, you know, a, a printed photograph that has the head and has the eyes. Now imagine if a bull comes in and he sees that decoy and he's making eye contact with it. But then he's staring at that decoy and all of a sudden he's thinking, man, this chick is really weird. It's been five minutes and she hasn't even blinked. She hasn't flicked her ear. She hasn't moved her head. Something doesn't seem right here because when they have interaction with elk, they don't see an elk stand there for five minutes without blinking or moving their head or flicking an ear. So whenever I use decoys, I, I use the butt head from Native by Carlton that has the three-dimensional face because with the stick, I can actually rotate my hand and I can move that whole three-dimensional face. They can see that. Plus I can reach up from the backside and tap the back of the ear. So you get that ear flick, like it's, you know, flicking away a fly or something. So. Gotcha. And that's not really one that you can hide behind super well, but it is three-dimensional, at least mm-hmm. in the head. And, uh, and it gives them something to look at besides you. The other one I really like is the rump from Montana decoy. Mm-hmm. Because what's going to happen is the bull is going to come in and he's going to get the visual sense. He's, he's going to see the elk. He's going to recognize the rump. He's going to know what that is. Right. Now, because he can't make eye contact because all it is on the rump, in his mind, it's she's got her head down feeding, pointing away from me. I need to come in closer from the side to be able to make eye contact with her. Well, that could be the few yards that you need to get that shot that brings him just the, the few little bits. So, so yeah, I think decoys can be highly effective in setups. Okay. Gotcha. So when do you determine it's time to set up, you know, this, this is a real sticking point for a lot of hunters is like, they don't know when to like continue moving closer, um, continue pursuing uh, like, when do you know, okay, here's, here's our Waterloo. Like we're going to, we're going to firm up right here. And then, you know, how do you position callers versus hunters? Like what, when, how do you do all this? Like this is make or break it time. That's, that's the magical question right there. So, so when I bought it, got a bull located, you know, the first few things that I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to gather some information real quick, you know, based on his response. Is he, is he still mobile? Is he situated down? What time in the morning is it? You know, this is all information that's going to kind of let me know if he's still in his travel corridor, if he's kind of getting close to his bedding area, he's starting to narrow down. Now, once I have that information, you know, then I'm going to take a quick look at, okay, what time of day is it? How long until Tell thermals change. Where do I need to be? Because this is all information that I want to do because I want to set up so that I'm ready for any of those situations. Um, and then basically, then it's just kind of move in. I like to get, like I said, under 150 yards if if I can to the bull. Now it all depends on you know, terrain on, you know, how thick the timber is, how thick the brush is. Now, obviously if I'm in thicker timber and brush, I'm going to get a little bit closer than that because I want to remove a lot of variables. Now, one of the things that I do a lot of times when I set up is I will, I will set my shooter up first I will pick the travel corridors. Okay. The, the bulls at point A, we're at point B because of where we're at on the elevation. He's going to come across this line. That's the corridor right there. We're going to bring him through. And then once I have my shooter set up, got their shooting lanes. Yep. We're good here. Then as a caller, I usually turn around and I look back and then I'm going to look back to find the farthest piece of brush or tree that I can see. And then I'm going to go back to that plus another 25, 30 yards past that a little bit. Okay. So just because what I'm doing is a bull is going to get to a point where he eventually stops, where he thinks he should be able to see the animal that's making the sound that he's hearing. Now they can see through a lot better than we can. So by me setting the shooter first, And then me moving back as the caller, I've got a visual exactly of where my shooter is, what the corridor is. And then based on what that bull is doing and the path that he's coming in, then I can adjust back there one way or another to either bring him a little farther up the hill or maybe a little, you know, lower on the hill, depending, depending on his route to me. And and again, this is where a mistake a lot of people make is they get that contact 
they they just tell their shooter, okay, move up 50 yards. Well, you don't have a clue where your shooter's at. You don't know the scenario. So you're hearing this bull come in, but you don't know, is he on the right path? Do I need to move uphill? Do I need to move downhill? You know, what, what do I need to do to make sure that I'm bringing that bull past my shooter? So, so that's why for me, I like to set the shooter first and then I move back as the caller. So, and one question I get asked a lot is, you know, how much distance between shooter and caller there, there's not a set, there's nothing that says, you know, we're going to have a 60 yard gap. We're going to have a 50 yard gap. I mean, it just varies from scenario to scenario. And sometimes things happen so fast, you might only have 10 feet between the two of you. Yeah. And so it's just, it's kind of based on the situation and then the, the visual sight distance that's available in that vegetation and terrain. Absolutely. And, and, you know, what's his response? I mean, you know, did we do, uh, you know, did we do a locate bugle and he was within, you know, a hundred yards and he's on his way, you know, just like that, you know, was he 300 yards out and we have time to, you know, do the good setups. And obviously if I can take the time in the setup, because setups are so critical, I'm going to take a little bit of extra time in that setup. I'd rather take, you know, a few extra seconds to set that up to increase the chances for success than trying to rush through it. And then all of a sudden going, well, we just had a bad setup and it just didn't work in a shot opportunity. Gotcha. Is there a moon phase that you like? You know, I, it, it doesn't really bother me because each one has kind of a little advantages and disadvantages. I know a lot of people frown on full moon because, you know, the daylight activity in the morning and the evening is really, really narrowed on elk. But the thing that a lot of people fail to realize is the midday activity actually increases during a full moon time. And I like that because most people on a full moon are like, well, it's only worth hunting the first hour or the last hour of the day. The rest of the time we just sit and camp and play cards and drink. Yippee skippy. Have at it. That means there's less of you guys out there in the woods that I got to deal with. Right. You know, we leave camp in the dark. We come back in the dark. We carry parachute hammocks so that we can spread them between two trees during the day and kick the boots off and eat lunch and take a little bit of nap. But then we're right there on them. So when we hear that midday activity and we know those bulls are up feeding again. So, but again, I think that comes into understanding the animals and how their stomachs work. And, you know, when they lay down with a full stomach and they start working on the contents of their stomach within three and a half, four hours, that, that stomach content is empty. They're not going to lay there with empty bellies the whole rest of the day until it's evening time to go out and feed again. They're going to get up in the middle of the day and fill that belly again. I mean, it's survival. They, they have to eat, they have to do that. And so that's where that midday activity can be really, really great during moon phases. So so, on top of that, during uh, September, it's so dry mm -hmm. that if they're eating that really dry fiber forage, they've got to get some water in order to digest it. Like they have to get water on top of dry food. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah, understanding that and, and, you know, understanding your area. And, and that's why a lot of times most bedding areas will have some sort of water source in fairly close proximity. Now, mind you, there's, there's exceptions to every rule. You get into Southern states that, you know, are just arid and dry and they've got water tanks. So that's a whole different scenario there. Water is vital. Water is king is, is key there, but I mean, where we hunt, we have so many springs and seeps and ponds. And I mean, there's just, there's water everywhere. Yep. Okay. So we've, we've caught up with the elk. Yep. There's a bunch of rut activity going on. Yep. Bulls are bugling. We've got a herd bull that's growling. We've got satellite bulls that are running around like madmen. Yep. We've got a couple of cows in heat that are running like crazy and, and we're there. And, mm -hmm. you know, we've got, we've got the wind advantage. How do we get, get involved in this game and actually move one of these bulls? Okay. So first thought, first off, one of the things that, that I think is a key mistake that, that a lot of people make is, is they, they get set up within, you know, that 150 yard mark of that herd bull and they're screaming at him, they're bugling at him. And now mind you, I talked earlier where that bull's in defensive mode and he's sitting there screaming a bugle back saying, stay away. What do you think most people do? Uh, mimic that bull 
and they stay exactly where they're at. Right. So this bull is telling them stay away. They're mimicking saying you stay away, but this bull is still here and people are set up still here. So you both are doing exactly what you're telling each other to do. You're staying away. So now bad job. (laughs) It is. And that's, well, and that's, that's, that's understanding the vocalizations. That's understanding. Okay. This, this dude's telling me to stay away. Or on the flip side, if somebody likes to focus on, on cow sounds and, and a bull is sitting there hitting you with a roundup bugle and he's telling you come to me, but you're continuing to stay right where you're at. You're not doing what he's asking you to do, but, but in this scenario, yeah, people will just sit there and, and you'll have a great scream fest. You'll have interactions with him and he will come uncorked and he will get frustrated. And, and it's not necessarily that he's getting uncorked and mad at you. He's getting uncorked and mad about all this harassment with all these other bulls that are trying to take away his lady that are trying to get in the middle of this rut session. So, so we have two options at this time is option one, we can be like just the rest of the satellite bulls and continue to scream at him and stay where we're at and stay away just like he's telling us to and do exactly what he's telling us to. And we're no different than any of the satellite bulls. There is nothing that separates us from anything that's going on right there. Or the second option is, and this is, this is why I teach the breeding sequence so heavily within the elk calling academy. Now imagine if you set up in that scenario and instead of calling to that bull, you start painting a picture that you're a bull with your own hot cow. You're not reacting to what he's doing. You're reacting to your hot cow. You're telling your story. You're in your element here. Interesting. So what does that sound like? Do you have any calls with you right now? I do. So I'm not going to dive into too much of the sound uh, because okay. of the paid members on the Elk Calling Academy. But, you know, basically the, the, the breeding sequence is I'll, I'll, I'll show some of the some of the bull vocalizations that are tied into it. And, and if you've, you, if you've ever watched videos of a bull that is kind of in that tending mode, you're going to hear a lot of huffs, grunts, and whines. You're going to hear a lot of glunking and, and it's just, it kind of. You know, he's, he, he's huffing, he's grunting, he's glunking, he's doing these little whines. And if you ever watch video or if you ever see elk out that this bull, when he's tending this cow, he's just dogging her. And he's doing those glunks. He's doing those huffs. He's, he's, oh, oh, oh. And it's basically, he's acknowledging that she's coming into estrus. And, and here's, here's why the breeding sequence is so effective is because elk do have vocalizations that they will do all year round, but there are bull vocalizations that only happen during the rut. Okay. And so that's why the breeding sequence is so effective. That's, that's why if, if, if once you understand this and you understand those vocalizations and, and bulls understand this too, as soon as they hear some of these vocalizations, they don't have to be in close proximity to be able to smell the pheromones they immediately know by the vocalizations and the sounds that they're hearing that that is a tending bull that has a hot cow. They immediately know that's, what's going to attract them. And then all of a sudden bring that, the, you know, those satellite bulls over that direction. So, um, but the breeding sequence, I, I, I mean, it's, it's, you know, you've got some cow sounds mixed in it and the, and, and the cow sounds aren't anything huge, just, You know, and you can you can throw some of the buzz muse in there, um, but mostly just a cow that sounds a little bit contented and it is um, and like like she's being paid attention to. You know, and she's she's giving some inviting sounds to him. You know, she's you know saying come here, um, and and that's the key. There is is it's those inviting sounds. It's it's not just normal muse and chirps.
you know, normal mews and chirps like that, that's part of everyday communication. That's like you and I sitting down having a conversation right now. So, but it has those inviting sounds that are saying, you know, come here to me, come over here, you know, and then she's going to do more sounds. Like I said, with the, the, the buzz mew, which to me is more of a demanding type sound. It's, you know, pay attention to me now. So, um, and then, you know, you mix in those huffs, grunts and whines and great raking and glunks and, and all that just immediately paints this picture in other elks mind that, oh man, I understand this scenario. I don't even have to see it to know exactly what's going on there. So now what happens is you have this herd bull over here, the chances of pulling him away from that hot cow until he breeds her is so minuscule. So, I mean, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's impossible. It can happen, but a lot of times though, those satellite bulls that are dogging around, I remember one year I was hunting uh, Montana and we got on a herd that the herd bull was about a 360, 365 and his satellites were in the 340 range. Wow. I'm okay with a 340 satellite. Yeah. That's a damn good bull. And so, so by setting the scenario up and now all of a sudden, because what happens is, is, you know, you've, you've got a satellite bull that's in that age class. He knows the herd bull. He knows he can't beat this herd bull, but all of a sudden now he's, here's a scenario over here. He's like, well, I don't really know that bull. I know I can't beat this guy. But man, that guy over there, maybe there's a chance that I can run him off and then I can breed that cow. And so what's going to happen is some of those satellite bulls are going to leave this scenario and then all of a sudden they're going to come over to yours. <laughs> so, and I did this in a, in a burn when we were in, in, in Montana and all of a sudden I looked up and here came six satellite bulls in a single file line just right down the trail right towards me. So they, they left the herd bull and wanted to come check out my situation to see if they could actually end up, uh, you know, breeding my cow instead. And, and did you connect on that deal? You know, I was actually going to let each of these guys pass because I was focusing on that, that herd bull. And all of a sudden about the fourth one in line, I looked, he, he was kind of getting close enough. He was, he was kind of a smaller five by five, but he had a bunch of dried velvet in his antlers. I think this was like October 5th or October 6th. And so anytime I find uniqueness like that, I'm like, what are the chances of finding that much dried velvet hanging off a bull's antlers? I mean, just cool. And, and so, yeah, he, uh, he ended up walking by me and I just zipped him and my, my hunting partner that I was with actually went around the knob. So I went up and, and gutted that bull real quick and then round around the knob looking for my hunting partner to get him into this because there was just a tons of bulls in this, on this old burn. And, and I popped up over the top to find out my hunting partner had heard the ruckus and he came in on the other side. So I slipped in behind him and kept working and he ended up getting a shot on that herd bull right at last light. But there was a, a broken off burnt snob stob that was just perfectly blocking the vitals that he never saw. And he center punched that stob. So, but, but yeah, ended up, uh, ended up taking one of the bulls out of that, uh, that group that was coming in. Now I have found that the last few minutes of light are the time to get a herd bull to actually move. And it right. seems like it's, it's mostly that that cow that's in heat is going to start running. And, and I think she's trying to get bred by satellite bulls, but that's when I'm starting to see that herd bull actually get vulnerable by moving around a little bit. Have you mm-hmm. noticed anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, there's a lot of things that's happening right at that last light, you know, they're, they're staging up, they're getting ready to move to their nighttime feeding grounds. And so you do have a lot of vulnerability right there because you do have so much activity that that bull, even though he has that hot cow, she may not be 100% receptive at that time. So yes, she is an estrus, but she's not in peak breed mode at that time. And so with everything else getting up, 
since that bull has been so focused on her this whole time that they've been bedded down, he hasn't had a chance to really scent check any of his other cows. And so when they're getting up and kind of starting to stage and get ready for that move, all of a sudden he is moving, scent checking all those other cows that he's kind of ignored all the rest of the day. And that's where you get that little window of vulnerability right there in that little window of opportunity. When do you draw your bow? Oh, that is the age old question that, uh, man, sometimes I still don't know the answer to that one. It's so, a tough one. It is, you know, and, and obviously, I mean, if, if I have the advantage that I can actually see the bull coming in, that I know his pace, I know his demeanor, you know, is he on guard? Is he being cautious or actually is he storming in? Those are all going to be kind of factors because if he's coming in, in cautious, which means he's kind of on a slow walk, his ears are really moving, picking up any movement going on. His eyes are constantly scanning. He is very, very cautious and really checking everything going around. So your opportunity to draw is critical at that point because he's going to be able to pick up on smaller movements. Now, since I always set up in the shadows, I get away with a little bit more movement. And, and that's one thing that a lot of people fail to understand is they think you got to be a rock solid statue. You can get away with a little bit of movement. It's, is it slow and methodical and controlled or is it fast and jerky? They're going to pick up on fast and jerky a lot more than they will slow and controlled. But also too, when he's coming in cautious like that, his opportunity to stop and scan almost like still hunting is a lot higher. Um, versus when they're trotting in just because you punched his pissed off button and he's just throwing caution to the wind, man, the hard part is, isn't drawing there. The hard part is stopping him in your, in your shooting lanes and shooting windows. So, but for me, it's, it's, it's more kind of a feeling of, you know, this is okay. Now is the time, time to draw. But when I set up, I've got my shooting lanes picked. I know the path he's coming in and I've already picked, okay, there's my draw tree. There's my secondary draw tree. You know, I, I always have more than one draw spot just in case he blows through the first one too quick. And I don't have that ability to draw. A couple of years ago, I called in a bull at 18 yards that was looking right directly at me that I was actually calling for my hunting partner. And, uh, I had barely picked my bow up off the ground and knocked an arrow when he came charging out. And he was actually looking right at me when I drew and came to, came to anchor and started bearing the pin. I was still waiting for my hunting partner to shoot him. And all of a sudden he turned his head and I saw a funky horn bull and I'm like, I ain't passing. I, I can't pass on funky horn bulls for some reason. Yeah. I, I don't pass on hardly anything. So <laughs> whether they're funky or, or, any other version, like they're yeah. probably in trouble if they're, if they're getting very close to me. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Okay. So knowing when to draw is based on kind of how hot that bull is coming in. One thing I've made the mistakes on in the past, and it's something that we know, but we don't necessarily think about. If you are close to a tree, you can mm -hmm. see through it pretty well. If mm -hmm. you're far from a tree, you can't see through it very well. So if that bull is walking right next to a tree and you think that that's your opportunity to draw, um, he can probably still see that movement. Like you still have to pretend like he can see you. Right. Um, if there's a tree like halfway between you and him, then your concealment is much, much better from that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Definitely yeah. And got I, that, gotten that one wrong before. Well, and, and their ability to see around them also, right. You know, looking, looking away from you a little bit while well, he was looking the other way, how much was he looking the other way? You know, was he looking at a 30 degree angle? Was he looking at a 90 degree angle? Really, really, where was he? How much of the back of the head could you see? Yeah. So they've got like 270 degrees of vision. They do probably see you. Yeah. But again, that's where setting up in the shadows and keeping your movements slow and methodical yep. is, is, you know, a huge, huge benefit. That's, that's why a lot of times, you know, I get asked, well, what do you think is the perfect poundage, you know, to hunt elk? It's the poundage that you can draw comfortably in a controlled setting. And yep. you may be caught in a weird angle where you're sitting on your butt. So can you can control the draw cycle? Can you do it smooth and slow, not just, you know, 
sky draw and, and, you know, get it back. And letting down, like, you know, there's all kinds of scenarios where you draw and you wait and you wait and you wait. And then it's like, okay, I'm too tired to execute the shot. When you go to let down, doesn't matter really at that point what your your draw weight is because you're exhausted right if you just pulled back 45 pounds and held it until you're exhausted when you let down it's gonna you know be a big violent movement it is Um, so that that's a really challenging scenario too and one thing that uh john appleton taught me on that is if you if you draw and you are looking through your sights looking through your peep sight you can only hold that back for a very short amount of time. Um, but if you lower your, your arms a little bit and you remain at full draw and you're, you're just holding your bow back, you're not aiming, mm-hmm. you can hold that back for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you're aiming, man, after 10 seconds, you're shaking hard. Right. So that's a power play as well. It's like don't aim until it's time to aim. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't, use a peep sight anymore. I, I yanked my peep sight out three, four years ago, but yeah, you, I, I don't know if you've ever sat there where you've drawn back and you're sitting there aiming and you are looking through that peep sight for a long period of time. If you've ever noticed that when you do go to let down, how it almost takes a minute for your eye to refocus because it's been looking through this for so long then all of a sudden when you remove that, it takes your pupils just a little bit of time to kind of adjust. It's almost like you have a, a little haze or, you know, things just aren't in true focus for a little bit. At least that's one of the things that I used to notice if I looked through a peep site for too long. Hmm. I'll have to check in on that. I don't, I don't know if, if I have that experience or not, but some definitely something worth testing now that you bring it up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I removed my peep sight was, I mean, just, we've, we've all heard it, man. I drew back and came to anchor and my peep didn't turn, or, you know, I was sitting there with my lip or my nose trying to turn the peep when the animal stepped out. And by the time I got back into anchor and uh, just, you know, all these different factors. And I just wanted to remove a variable of something that could go wrong in the, in the scenario. So it's, it's been an interesting, uh, interesting process, interesting journey. What other modifications have you made to your shooting setup? And like, definitely now is not the time of the season that I encourage people to start modifying their setup. Um, but what other things that do you do with your arrow, with your bow, anything that you feel like has given you a distinct advantage? One of the big things that I did years ago was I ditched my multi-pin sight and went to a single pin sight. Oh, yes. Just because I was sitting there taking a look and I, I kind of started writing down the yardages of elk that I, you know, had harvested. And all of a sudden I came to the conclusion that my average shot is 22 yards. Yeah. That's, and I'm like, why that, am I, correct, yeah. why, why am I carrying a five pin or a seven pin sight that I've got to look through all this when I know my average shot's going to be 22 yards. And now mind you people are, well, okay, but you have a single pin. I don't have time to adjust it. I don't adjust it. I lock it at 30 yards when I'm hunting and I do enough practicing that I know where my arrow is going to hit at 20. And I know my, where my arrow hit is, is going to hit at 40. And so basically I just use Kentucky windage, but again, the law of averages is 22 yards. And now mind you, if I need to shoot out past that, I have time to range it and really dial it in. But the reason I went to this was because of sight picture. You know, I've, I've always had that, uh, you know, was taught early on, aim small, miss small. So I love it when a bull is coming in and if he's got a tuft of hair on his side or he's got a clump of mud because he was in a wallow, that is where I want to shoot him. Man, now it's game on. It's like, I'm going to drill that mud spot. I'm going to drill that tuft For of sure. hair. And, and so... The single pin allows me, but the other thing too that I really like about it is because that vertical pin, I can put that vertical pin right up the backside of the leg and it lets me know exactly where I am off of that 
shoulder. It just gives me another reference point on that animal and also understanding the anatomy and how that, you know, leg bone comes up and then shifts forward at the, at the 45 degree. And you, then you got the scapula that comes back and you have that triangle right there. Well, by understanding that I, I can use that vertical pin as a reference to come up that leg and know exactly where I'm at on that animal. So, so for me, it was switching over to give me a much, much better sight picture. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that that works for you. Um, I will say that the reason that I don't advocate for single pin is the scenario that I've often seen um, with my clients. And then back in the day when I shot single pin, cause I used to shoot it too, is, you know, bull would come in and look like your shot opportunity was going to be at 40 yards mm-hmm. and you'd range. Okay. It's going to be a 40 yard shot and you dial and it's like, okay, I'm on 40 and you draw and then he keeps walking and then he busts you and he runs away and then he comes back in and now it's over with, like you have no idea where to hold at this point. Right. And uh, that that's really problematic. And then the other problem that people very commonly have, and again, very much including myself is they will forget that their pin is not on the setting that they think it's on. Right. And they don't have a frame of reference for that at full draw. Um, or they don't look at it. So they'll, they'll draw back and they'll be set on, you know, 70 yards, which they're practicing at this morning. And all of a sudden, like they're trying to take a a 20 yard shot and 20 is where they typically leave their pin. Then they absolutely shank it. Mm -hmm. It's like, Oh man, that was stupid. So absolutely. And and there's definitely some, some drawbacks, but uh, there are some real advantages as well. And I, I like the, the site picture thing that you're referencing. And that's where practicing and understanding and leaving that set at 30 is the key for us. And actually my, my whole entire group, uh, you know, shoots single pin and, and it's, it's gone through the evolution. I mean, it started as a five pin, then it went to a three pin slider and then just straight to a, a one pin slider and, you know, a three pin slider. Uh, I, I think for somebody that wants to shoot multi-pins, but still have the ability for uh, a slider for longer yardages, I think a three-pin is a great option. And, you know, now you have companies, uh, you know, Spot Hog came out with a double pin a couple of years ago. Now they just came out with a triple stack. And so you can get those three pins in reference in a vertical post, which, you know, is another great option. Um, but as far as the single pin with the 30 yards, that's, that's one of those things that spending time behind the string and training yourself, um, you know, to, to be in those situations. Now I understand with you where you've got clients coming in that maybe they didn't, maybe they haven't spent the time, you know, they can't sit there and, and tell you, okay, at 30 yards with my pin set at 30, if I'm going to shoot 40 yards, I know that I'm going to be four and a half inches below the dot. Most people can't sit there and tell you that they, they don't know that they're four and a half inches low or five inches sure. low. And, but understanding your equipment and understanding and spending time and enough time with it, that it, it, it becomes automatic out there. But the other thing with us too, is we won't take our first initial shot past 40 yards. So I won't either. Yeah. It's just, there's too much can happen, too much kinetic energy loss. I mean, you're talking about a wild animal that, uh, you know, their behavior, what are they going to do on the shot? Are they going to take a step? Are they going to jump? And, and and, I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with people and now mind you, I practice it longer yardages. I mean, I'm, I'm 55, 60 yards, uh, indoor all throughout the winter and in season. And then summertime, you know, we're stretching it out 70, 80 yards at practicing. And I I understand what it takes to execute that shot, but I got into archery to get as close as possible to draw the animal as close as possible. So for me, it's more of a skill set to get them in closer than it is to execute that shot at longer yardages. Plus I'm removing variables that can end up with a poor shot. And that's one thing I tell a lot of people, you take a questionable shot, you get a marginal hit, you end up on a 14, 18 hour track job. You're going to rethink everything about your approach. It only takes one poor hit animal for you to change your look on all of that. Yeah. You know, it, I, I bring this up with, uh, with rifle hunters all the time because I, I hear this from archery hunters a lot, like, Oh, I just like to get really close. And, uh, and that's why I don't like to rifle hunt. 
is there a rule that says that you're not allowed to get close with a rifle? No. Um, <laughs> and uh, like the guy that does the, the artwork for this show, um, he's a tattooer named John Chatelain. He shoots almost everything at like 30 yards or under, whether he's using a bow, whether he's using a muzzleloader, whether he's using a rifle. And he's a tremendous hunter. He's a tremendous hunter. Mm-hmm. And I have the utmost respect for that. I have so much more respect for somebody who can get close than somebody who shoots long ways. Right. And each is a skill. I'm not trying to it take is. away from that. I really encourage people to practice at long range with any weapon system that they shoot, right. whether it's a, a pistol or a rifle or bow. I don't care. Practice long range because long range will teach you how to be more precise at close range, mm-hmm. but I want you to hunt at close range, regardless of the weapon. Right. Um, if they have powder burns on them at the end of it, like you done, right. <laughs> Let's get close. Absolutely. Well, and, and one of the things too, is, you know, we were talking a little bit about the breeding sequence and some of those audio sounds that are in there and you know, those huffs and those grunts and those glunks and, you know, those are a lot of low audible noises that a lot of people don't even realize what they are out in the woods when they hear them, because everybody is so focused and ingrained on hearing that high pitch volume, high bugle, that they, they miss out on those low audible noises. I remember I was talking to a guy from Western Contours a couple of years ago before he went out to Colorado and we were really talking about low audible noises. And, and I remember the moment he got back from the hunt, he called me up and he goes, dude, I never realized there was that much low audible noises going on out there. And until you're tuned into hearing those you don't understand them. You don't hear them. But once you start listening, and and I think that's one of the keys to successful calling is adding those low audible noises into your setups and into your calling routine, because now you're basically adding validity into your calling setup because you're calling and doing what you're calling like elk and you're doing what elk do. Yeah. But yeah. you got it. You got to be close to be able to hear those. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not always to an elk's advantage to blast out over the entire hillside. Hey, I'm over here and I've got some cool stuff going on. Like, but they still need to communicate. Um, They, they, they do, they do. And, and here's, here's a prime example of it is, you know, if, if, if you were hunting an area that has a lower bull to cow ratio, so, which means the bulls have just choice of cows, galore. They don't have a lot of competition. So you're kind of a four and a half, five and a half year old bull that all of a sudden you got a herd of seven, eight cows for the very first time. And you're in your little, you're in your little drainage. What on earth is going to sit there and make you broadcast out low vocalizations to let everybody in the world know where you're at? You have no competition. Now there's a lot of those low audible noises going on because those don't travel as far. They don't have a problem doing that stuff. And like you said, they do have to communicate because that's just how they are. They're, they're a herd animal. So now on the flip side, that high bull to cow ratio where you have a lot of competition, those areas and those bulls are going to tend to be a lot more vocal because they're competing through vocalization for those cows. Yeah, for sure. Here's, here's the question. Here's the question. It's the last day of the season. Mm-hmm. Now what's our plan? So ultra aggressive. This ultra is aggressive. Ultra aggressive. Going this hard, is hard at everything. Hard at everything. This is this is basically, you know, creating scenarios. This is this is where that 150 yard window now gets down to 75, 80. I'm I'm gonna put pressure on them. I'm gonna get as close as possible. Either one thing is gonna happen, either they're gonna come in for a shot or I'm gonna bump them off the mountain. So um, at, at, at this point in the game, you got nothing to lose where earlier in the season, you were more apt to kind of, you know, hang back a little bit because you didn't want to blow them out of the bedding area. You didn't want to bump them out of their normal routine. Everything's off the table. Now it's, it's all tricks. I mean, it doesn't matter if you get ultra aggressive with them and you blow them out of the bedding area, you're not coming back tomorrow anyways. So um, you just gotta, you just gotta try those things and put as much pressure on them. You know, if, if you give that bull enough room, fight or flight, he's, he's going to, he's going to pick flight 
every time, but you get ultra aggressive and you get close to him where he doesn't have the flight option. All he's got is fight. And, and it may come down to it that you've been targeting a herd bull this whole entire time. But unfortunately he's had those cows coming into estrus that you haven't been able to pull them away. And it could be that last day that finally he doesn't have a cow in his group that's in estrus. And now you've got a window of opportunity to be able to pull them away from his cows. And there's your chance right there. When a cow's only in heat for 15 hours, right? Like it's, it's a rapid cycle. Right. Um, which is why the, the rut is so intense because oh, yeah. it's, it's a short amount of time. It is. And, and, you know, you got a bull that's got 25, 30 cows and they're only bred within this seven to 10 day window. You're talking about three cows coming into on, on average, three cows coming into estrus per day. Yep. He's, he's pretty dang laser focused on what he's going to do and a, and a good dominant herd bull is very, very efficient when it comes to the rut. Yeah. And there are times that because he does have multiple cows coming in in a day, that's why satellite bulls can slip in and breed some of the cows because he's so focused with other ones that are coming to estrus. Gotcha. Tell me about uh, Elk Calling Academy. I so, feel like this is an underutilized resource. So Elk Calling Academy. So I actually started working in the hunting, in the, in the hunting industry almost 20 years ago. Uh, I started working for Primos, um, and then I ended up making the jump from Primos to, at that time, it was called Bugling Bull Game Calls. Now it's Rocky Mountain Hunting Calls, and I ended up being with Rocky for, you know, 10 years, and then we ended up splitting and and kind of going separate directions, and um, I was in a local archery shop one day, and they said, hey, we got a call from a guy asking if there was anybody that could teach him how to call, and um, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I said, yeah, I've, I've, I've taught people how to use diaphragm reads before. I said, well, you know, what's, what's his number. I'll give him a call. And so I reached out to him and I was talking to him and, and he says, well, I'm willing to pay for your time. And I said, no, you don't, you don't have to do that. I said, I've taught people how to use, use reads and I'll, uh, I'll gladly teach you. And so I got off the phone and all of a sudden my youngest son was like, dad, I want to take swimming lessons. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll find an instructor. And then this light bulb went off and I was like, wait a minute, we can pay for swim lessons and dance lessons and guitar lessons. And I wonder if there's people out there that would be willing to pay for one-on-one outcalling lessons. And, and I said, there's gotta be, cause I remember the struggle when I first started learning that there was, there was nothing out there. It was just trial and error. And that learning curve is huge. And, and so I went ahead, I started, you know, doing one-on-one lessons and, and started getting a few more students. And then it kind of morphed into uh, the online uh, to where, you know, like I said, at, at elkcallingacademy.com, it's, you can either do a monthly subscription or an annual subscription, uh, but it's got tutorial videos where I break the whole process of learning how to use a diaphragm read down into, into steps. And I also break down the cow vocalizations, you know, what they are, what they mean, how to do them, when to do them and bull vocalizations. And then it, then it morphed a little bit farther to where all of a sudden I opened up my playbook. This is, this is exactly what I do. This is, this is my inviting cow routine for early season. This is my breeding sequence. This is how I do it in a blind calling scenario. This is, this is how I do it. If I've got a bull located and then it morphed into, you know, e-scouting and here's the tools that I do. And, you know, out in the field with videos showing setups, you know, this is, this is an example of why I set up with the shooter here and the caller here. And this is why. And, and so it's, it's more than just elk calling it's it's the whole aspect of of elk hunting i mean we we go through elk anatomy and and understanding you know the bone structure and the vitals and uh, different angles and what's good and what's bad and um, and you make yourself available to the students, right? Right. I do. And, and within elkcallingacademy.com is every two weeks, I do a live broadcast just for the herd members in there where it's live Q&A that it's specifically to answer any questions with them. And, and of course, too, if, if, if they still want one-on-one lessons, then they have that ability that can set up and do some one-on-one lessons. Cause sometimes it's just a, a little adjustment with how the reed is sitting in the roof of your mouth or how your tongue is making contact on that reed that just, you know, changes a few things. Um, 
so yeah, still do the one-on-one, but lean in more towards the e-course and actually in the process of right, right now of re-recording all of the videos and the videos and all the elk vocalizations, I'm teaching them on a diaphragm. I'm teaching them on an open read cow call. I'm teaching them on external read bugles. So it doesn't matter what you pick up because there's people out there that just can't use a diaphragm read. They have a major gag reflex or they have, you know, an allergy to latex, just for some reason they can't use a diaphragm read. So they have to go with externals. And so I wanted to make sure in the new e-course that it teaches that side of it also. And, and still too, even though, because you're proficient with a diaphragm read, using an open read cow call or external read bugle, can change the pitch, can change the tone up just a little bit that just gives you another dimension. It gives you another tool to use. Yeah. And those, those dimensions matter. They They matter very much. Michael and I've taught two or three seminars together. You're always an excellent presenter. I always learn something from you. Um, And I learned a lot today that like I'm going to be implementing because uh, that, well, actually, check that. I'm not going to be implementing it this year because I'm going to be hunting in Alaska during uh, this week of the season, mm. but uh, I will be implementing it in the future because the the peak rut week, you know, after, after the 20th, it's tough. It, it, it's a tough part of the season. And I do feel like you're exactly right. I've just been getting carried away in that energy and excitement and not managing my own game. I'm, I'm letting the animals run the zoo. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the key things right there is, is, you know, the other thing, one of the other things that I always teach at the Elk Calling Academy is you, you have two options in your calling scenario is you can be offensive or you can be defensive. And the problem is, is a lot of times people end up getting in a defensive nature that they don't understand. They're letting the bull control or lead really that interaction of what's going on. And once you're in a defensive nature, that bull's not going to come. He knows he has the upper hand, he has the advantage. And so the ability to turn that around and become offensive. And a lot of times the way you do that offensive is you actually quit calling to that bull. You tell your story. You are encased in what is going on for you. You are telling your story. Here's what's going on. You are a bull that has a hot cow. You could give two craps what's going on around you. You're so focused on this that how that all of a sudden switches that now people want to be a part of your scenario. And you didn't actually call to them. You, you didn't engage with them. All of a sudden, they want to be a part of your scenario. They want to be a part of your story. And that's what really can open up the door at that point to, to really increase the opportunities within that, that, that peak rut window right there. Yeah. And uh, it is a very exciting time to hunt. Oh, it's an awesome time to hunt. I I know I get asked all the time is what's your favorite time to hunt from September or, or, you know, during archery season. And I'm like, you know, I love August 30th to September 30th. (laughs) (laughs) Because each, each phase brings something a little bit different to it. And by the day, by the time of day. Absolutely. I mean, morning versus hour and, and, you know, I was asked once what I think one of the key to our successes is. And I said, we don't walk out in the forest hoping to interact with an animal. We know we're going to. Yeah. We don't walk out hoping we're going to fill tags. We know we're going to. We have those confidence. And we also understand exactly like you said, things can change from day to day or hour to hour. You could be getting your teeth kicked in on a 10 day hunt. And all of a sudden the morning of day nine, everything lines up and you end up with a, a punch tag. And all of a sudden you're looking back going, this is one of the greatest hunts of my life. Yeah. But up to that point, you were getting drugged through the mud. That, that confidence and that intention is so critical. Um, when I was, you know, a, a little kid, one of the first bucks I ever killed, We'd, I'd hunted with my dad the whole season and, uh, of course hadn't shot a buck yet. And then we found some bucks up on the backside of this knoll. And when we took off, um, my dad was walking ahead of me and I saw that he had his bone saw tucked into his back pocket. And I was like, Oh, we're not hunting now. Like now we're going to go shoot a buck. 
And that, that little shift of mindset changed everything. Cause it's not like I didn't have opportunities earlier in the season. I did. I was right. just, you know, 12 years old and I sucked at everything, <laughs> but, <laughs> but just, just that little bit of intention changed everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I went over there and shot a buck. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So thank you again for your time. Good luck this season. Um, thank you. and just, like everybody knows we're, we're recording all these before season because, you know, my life gets extremely hectic, uh, starting a couple of days from now. And, uh, I just wanted people to have fresh intelligence from the best elk hunters in the industry, um, for that week of the season. So this is the last week of the season that, that you guys are getting to listen to this. And I hope that for you guys who are still out there in the woods, that you can use the stuff that, that you've learned throughout this series and uh and put it to use and be able to to bring home an elk and i want to thank you again for your time for assisting and all that oh you bet it's it's been an honor you know thank you thank you for uh you know the invite and having me i've been excited to sit down and and chit chat with you i've been uh you know much much respect for you and a huge fan of uh you know everything that you've been doing and so yeah definitely humbled and and honored for this opportunity to sit down with you thank you sir you bet I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my woodpile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt, or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store and catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, Follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.